Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Steph on Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it's time for another Feminist Movie Friday. I think it could be a Feminist Movie Wednesday. The schedule is shifting. Lots of things happening. I think it's a Friday. Hey, either way, they might not be listening on a Friday. So just a feminist movie day. A feminist movie day, which should be every day. Should be every every day. day. (laughs) True story. Yes. Quick trigger warning before we get into this. There are going to be discussions of sexual assault, abuse, and suicidal ideation. Nothing too in-depth because we're we're talking about Thelma and Louise. So if you've seen the movie, that's about the extent of it. But just in case. And also, I feel like (sighs) I didn't give enough emphasis to... We're talking about Thelma and Louise. Yeah, Thelma and Louise, an iconic duo that we all pretty much know, I would hope, unless maybe you were born in the last 20 years and you've never seen this movie, then maybe not. Go watch it. I've never heard of this movie. Go watch it. You should. Yeah, so we are talking about Thelma and Louise. And I actually, I, I just came out very strong but I only saw this movie for the first time, I think last year, when we did our episodes, episodes, because it was a two-parter on Women in Revenge. And I really, really enjoyed it. I definitely knew what it was and had seen like parodies of the ending, but I'd never seen it. And Samantha, you were saying before we recorded this, before we started recording, that you're not sure you've ever seen it in full. I know, and I say this to the people who are like, you know what this is. But I, of course, again, like I said, we know what this is. I have seen pieces of this movie to the point that I had thought I'd seen all of it. But then mm-hmm. when I rewatched it, I was like, wait, I think I've never really seen the complete uh, movie in one sitting. So it could have been that I watched half of it one time and then three months down the road, I was like, oh, here it is, it's on. Because it used to be on like cable network all the time. Yeah. I don't know if it's still happening because I'm, I don't have cable anymore. We just stream everything. So, but when I did have cable network, TNT would often have it on. And so, and it doesn't have it on just once. It typically runs three or four times within a span of periods, like a month, because I guess they bought the rights, so they're going to use it to the full extent. So I would see pieces of it and I knew each piece. But when I sat down and watched it in order, I was like, wait. I don't know if I've ever fully watched this entire movie in one setting. Even to the fact that, yes, I remember the Brad Pitt scene, but Mm -hmm. I don't remember the fact that he got caught, which, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this movie is so iconic that even though I hadn't seen it, I felt like I had, and there were just certain scenes that I just, like Brad Pitt jumping on the bed shirtless or, you know, the car going over the side. I just... New. Yeah. And by the way, for those who have heard him today, except for like, if you've seen uh, Burn After Reading, where he plays the ditzy uh, gym guy. Yeah. His voice is completely different from other movies. It, like if you've yeah. watched like Fight Club, if you've watched A River Runs Through It, which is, by the way, is the first movie I ever saw him in. Mm-hmm. Beautiful man. His voice is high-pitched and very country accent to yeah. play the, the con artist he plays in this movie. So it may throw you off. From what you know of yeah. Brad Pitt in his young days. Yeah, and I guess a bit of a spoiler before we get into the spoiler into what we're going to talk about, not about the movie, because it's old enough that I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you've had your time. It's a classic now. It was interesting in very sweet casting story between Gina Davis and him, where he was the one that flustered her so much she kept messing up. 
And at the end, they asked her, like, who should we cast? And she was like, obviously the one I could not keep, like, <laughs> straight around because he was flustering me so much. And also, as we're going to get into in-depth, um, when this movie came out, there was a lot of discussion around its man-hating, essentially. And a lot of people have pointed out, well, what star came out of this movie? Brad Pitt did. Right. Um, so how much... To start his role as being, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, a babe, the mo- ultimate movie star. Oh, my God. He's the yeah. one. Again, to me, it was a river runs through it. And I will die and fight anyone who says differently. Because that was the first time I ever saw Brad Pitt. And I remember thinking, holy crap, who is that dude? <laughs> and if he smiles like that at me ever, I will faint. Of course, he's also the tortured boy in that movie. Oh, yeah. The unattainable tortured boy. Yep. But okay. I know all about that. I know all about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I haven't seen that movie, so hey, future future movie date between you and I. Um, yeah. So we actually happen to be accidentally timely because this is the 30th anniversary of this movie, and a lot of articles are coming out right now about it. So that's cool. We do this a lot. We do this a lot where we're right around like the big numbers of like, oh, look at this classic. It's been a classic for this long. And yes, mm-hmm. again, like I said, for those who, you know, born 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you probably have no idea or have vague idea of what we're talking about because it is 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And Annie, it is definitely one of those that a lot of women will be like, we're going to Delma and Louise this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I've used that reference before. With you, no, not with you yet, because we haven't gotten into any trouble, but definitely with co-hosts and lady like Caroline, we talk about stuff like that just because I could see us being the ones getting in trouble. <laughs> I feel like you and I got in trouble that one time at that food festival but we didn't caught, so. <laughs> yes, we were mischievous without getting caught and ran away very quickly. Not going to tell that story, though. But <laughs> it's not. It's really innocent, everyone. Please don't It really is, it. but <laughs> it makes me feel good that I was kind of mischievous. Because that's kind of this whole idea of this movie, a little bit being free. But, you know, ethically, not so much good things. We know this. <laughs> so let's begin with the plot with Thelma and Louise, which uh, was made in 1991 and is a Ridley Scott film. We've talked about him before. We've yeah. mentioned him before in our series, obviously. And it does star the wonderful, iconic Gina Davis, which we have talked about before with A League of Their Own, yes. who plays Thelma, as well as Susan Sarandon, who plays Louise, because we talked about her from the Witches of Eastwick That's episode. Right. That's Another right. iconic actress, obviously still today. And of course, there's a, a shirtless Brad Pitt in one of his first big roles. And yes, he became a heartthrob. Thanks to this. I think he was on many teen magazines with that cowboy hat shirtless. Oh, I yeah. remember this. Did I oh, buy yeah. it? No. But did I look at it? Yes. <laughs> you can admit it, Samantha. Yes. I did, because I didn't have the money, but I well, did stare at it at the grocery store lines while mm. standing with my mother to buy groceries. Mm-hmm. It was written by Callie Curry and is often described as, yes, a female buddy road trip film. A comedy, a drama, a feminist odyssey. Oh. 
I like that. Yeah. Curry said she got the idea in sort of a light bulb moment where she was thinking about women on a crime spree and that quote, I saw in a flash where those women started and where they ended up through a series of accidents. They would go from being invisible to being too big for the world to contain because they stopped cooperating with things that were absolutely preposterous and just became themselves. Yeah, so apparently, okay, a couple of things. So Corey, this was her first screenplay and she allegedly based it on a friendship she had with a country music singer and also just a bunch of women really connected to these sort of, in quote, smaller instances of women being harassed throughout the film. And they were like, yes, yes, I connect with this. This needs to be made. And this was after a history of sexism in Hollywood because apparently in a casting session, not for this movie, Corey was asked to choose women with bigger breasts and less clothes. And she, along with producers she often worked with, Amanda Temple, who was instrumental in this movie as well, would often say, you get what you settle for, which is a line in the movie. Mm-hmm. So Temple was able to contact Ridley Scott through a friend then named Mimi Polk, who's now Mimi Gitlin or Mimi Holt Gitlin, who ran Scott's production company. And they handed Gitlin the script more to check that they weren't way off uh, on it after several rejections. They were like, is this any good? Because we think it's good, but people keep rejecting us. And Gitlin connected Again, yeah, a lot of the things in the script, she was like, yes, I've been through this. Yes, this is good. And she convinced them they needed to show it to Ridley Scott with the idea that he might produce it. However, when he read it, he later said, quote, I saw what was unique about it immediately. Women tended to get parts of somebody's girlfriend. This was about no one else but them. It had substance, it had a voice, and it had a great outcome, which you could never change. Their decision was courageous to carry on the journey and not give in. Right. And he also later said, I'd never had trouble letting women tell me what to do. All the years I'd run my company, I'd find that women were the best men for the job. Scott Free LA was run by a woman. Scott Free London was run by a woman. I could sit around and analyze the foolishness of men since men are fundamentally the children in any relationship. So on as kind of it is shown in this movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> I feel like we could talk about that. Forever, <laughs> the men in yeah. this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know we mentioned in our Alien episode, but really Scott has said he is a stout feminist because of his mother. I do think that's a whole separate issue of like, you know, lauding male feminists. Great allies, advocates always. But, you know, like the levels I think are different and the judgments I think are different. And the standards. But, yes, exactly. <laughs> but I do think, you know, that that's interesting. Scott did press... Corey to add more humor to to the script to appeal to everyone in the audience, including men, uh, to, quote, make them eat crow. Under the understanding they get name actresses and $500,000 for Corey, they sold the rights to Scott and Gitlin. Also, like, Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer were the original names. Jodie Foster did Silence of the Lambs. Michelle Pfeiffer did an independent film, and she now says she cannot bear to watch this movie because of the... Missed the regret opportunity. Uh-huh. Uh, but to be fair, and I know we say this often, I just don't know if if without Gina Davis. Yeah. I mean, her character, because overall, when we see Gina Davis's character, she is the powerful, 
powerful one or the powerhouse one in typically all the movies that she's in, even in Beetlejuice. Even though she's kind of meek and mild, she's still a powerhouse mm-hmm. and trying to maintain her home, obviously. So mm-hmm. I just, I mean, not that Michelle Pfeiffer is not, but they also love bringing in Michelle Pfeiffer to be the demure, giggly woman, which yeah. she does beyond that. And we know that and her acting skills are superb. But mm-hmm. you do typically see that for her role, which, mm-hmm. by the way, would have been hilarious if it had been Michelle Pfeiffer because she and the dude that plays Gina Davis's character were in Grease 2, which is the movie that she hated the most. <laughs> and yes, I still remember those movies. Well, <laughs> oh God, let's do a Grease you. I've never seen Grease. Okay. Wow. But, per- well, you don't like musicals. I forget that. Because you're left for Hamilton. I'm willing. Well, it's I forget I've that you don't love you, musicals. I've told you I don't like, so Hamilton is almost all music. There's no talking. Right. My right. problem is the surprise song. So I think I think. I'm sorry, that's Grease. And Grease 2 <laughs> is the... I love it because it is, I think to me, it's like a cult classic of how bad it is. Okay. But I love it. And it's okay. worse. Well, I'm into it. I'm, I, I want to do it. I, I will get over this fear of mine. <laughs> uh, but also see our past Feminist Movie Friday on Batman Returns. It's true. It's true. Uh, about Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. But also, interestingly, Gina Davis, she wanted the role of Louise and she wanted it badly and her agent was calling like Ridley Scott daily like get her in and the timing just kept shifting because of uh, director issues they were trying to find a director that was not Ridley Scott and eventually there was like a timeline and Gina Davis wrote this essay on like why should be Louise and then Ridley Scott was like so you wouldn't be Thelma? And then Gina Davis, like, went into a whole essay, and she's like, no, actually, I think I would be a Thelma. She went the whole thing. And they, she signed an open-ended contract and said, I would do either. So that's how she got the role, which I find really interesting. She does amazing at it. And I will say, this is a very personal note, Gina Davis has a really deep voice. Mm-hmm. And when I was young, I was really ashamed of my voice because I thought it was really masculine, really deep. Um, but she's a, an actor that I always connected with because her voice is so deep. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm the same way. I didn't connect with her that way. I connected with her because she wasn't feminine. Like, she wasn't, she wasn't. Like, she wasn't dripping with uh, being very girly. And Mm -hmm. I mean that by, like, she was athletic. She She moved in a different way, and she was tall and, like, had a different manner of being without being seen as overtly feminine. And as much as I wanted to be feminine, I really wasn't. I was not necessarily, like, the, uh... Tomboy. I wasn't necessarily the tomboy, but I definitely didn't hit the like princess either. So it made me feel really awkward. And she does that in a way, like of being the awkward girl without being either way. And it's kind of like, yeah. oh, she is the middle ground that I've been looking for. Cause then, yeah. you know, when you, especially when you see glamorized movies, you see that glamorized and or the opposite where they're complete tomboys. And I was like, I'm not either one of these. Who am I? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. She kind of did that in, in League of Our Own as well. Mm-hmm. So Ridley Scott did approach several directors about this movie. And he later accounted this story of like this guy saying, listen, dude, it's two bitches in a car. Uh, and Ridley Scott said, why are they bitches? Because they have a voice. And another guy said, oh, it's small. To which I said, no, it's epic. I being Ridley Scott. And he started talking about the proscenium, the landscape, was a third big character in the movie. 
and that the film is an odyssey. And then he went on to say, like, I didn't realize when I was interviewing these guys that I was talking myself into it. So that being, he talked himself into directing. And this was after, like, Gitlin had said, you should do it. And a couple of people had said, you should do it. Uh, Corey was nervous about it because she was like, oh, then it will become a big film. And I don't know what that will mean. But eventually they reached a point where they were both comfortable and they were both like, okay, let's do this. Right. Because obviously it's not just... He's known for the big action films at that point in time. Yeah. And so this was a lot about heart. Um, And typically, I wouldn't have imagined Ridley Scott. Honestly, I forgot that it was him. Mm -hmm. Would have uh, directed this film either. Mm -hmm. So the film follows best friends Thelma and Louise who decide to take a weekend trip to a mountain cabin to get away from their lives in small town Arkansas where Thelma is a housewife married to a controlling and a loudly, verbally abusive husband (laughs) and Louise is a waitress dating a musician who is never around. Also the actor who plays uh, Thelma's husband, her ex. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. I know him from all of the uh, Quentin Tarantino movies. She recommended him. She was like, I mean, I say that as if it's a positive, but she she (laughs) recommended him. (laughs) I mean, and we're going to talk about this a little more, but his character wasn't, like, dislikable. Like, he seemed like the typical, ugh, you, but at the same time, he was still one of the more loyal of the... Yeah, it's interesting. I have a lot of thoughts about that, and we're definitely going to get into it. Okay, so Thelma and Louise stop at a bar on their way to their destination where Thelma who's like so into this idea and like, I need a vacation. I want to have fun. She dances with a very flirty stranger named Harlan. And later in the parking lot, Harlan kisses her and tries to take off her clothes without her consent. And when she resists, he gets violent and attempts to rape her. Louise arrives with a gun and threatens to shoot him. And he he reluctantly releases Thelma. But as they're walking away, he insults both of them, says he should have raped Thelma. Furious, Louise shoots and kills Harlan, and the pair flee the scene. True. Yes. Also, I feel like I have a lot of behind-the-scenes facts for this one. I like it. Uh, Yeah, so Susan Sarandon made it clear, and it was clear in the script as well, that it was a very split-second decision on her character's part, that it was, like, not premeditated, but he just called her this, and it was, like, the last thing. And it was just, like... (gasps) Final straw snapped, which I find really interesting. And the acting is amazing in this movie. Of course. Yeah. Okay, so the pair go to a motel and they discuss what they should do about the situation. Um, And they discuss it on the the car ride on the way. Thelma wants to go to the police, but Louise disagrees, thinking no one will believe that the man tried to rape Thelma. No one will believe them, especially after bar patrons saw Thelma dancing and drinking with Harlan, with this man and that they would be charged with murder. Uh, Eventually, they decide to go to Mexico, or at least Louise decides to go to Mexico, but she insists they do it without passing through Texas. So while on their way, they meet 
a handsome and often shirtless drifter, <laughs> J.D., played by Brad Pitt, and Thelma quickly becomes smitten with him and persuades and begs Louise to allow him to ride with them for a little while. Louise contacts her boyfriend to get him to transfer her life savings to her, but he surprises her by showing up and he proposes, which she refuses because it's obvious that he's just scared that he's going to lose her. Right. So therefore, this is what he's doing. Thelma sleeps with JD and finds out he's a thief who is breaking parole. Uh, When the pair wake the following morning, oh yeah, they realize that JD, who went to a whole thing about how he liked to rob people, has stolen all of Louise's savings and is nowhere to be found, leaving Louise devastated and Thelma incredibly guilty, so she robs a convenience store with what she learned from JD. She had to get a play-by-play on what he did. And she yeah. decided, I know, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I mean, that's so, it's such a sweet and sad scene, especially if you know what happens. Because she's so happy because yeah. she got, like, good sex for the first time. Right. Um, but then you're like, wait, he definitely robbed you. <laughs> <laughs> so the FBI closes in on them following eyewitness accounts of their vehicle. Uh, they question a newly apprehended JD. They question Louise's boyfriend. They tap the line of Thelma's husband, who hilariously and sadly enough to me, he's like, oh, hi, Thelma. And she hangs up and is like, nah, they're being tapped because she knows oh, right. he wouldn't be that nice to her. The head investigator, played by Harvey Keitel, seems to understand their actions, especially given Louise's past. Um, and it's kind of implied... I guess the story shifts, but it's kind of implied at first that, like, Louise was the mastermind behind the whole thing, and then it's like, oh, wait, Thelma's the one that stood up this place, which is important to to the alternate ending we're going to discuss later. But um, he is, Harvey Keitel's character is unsuccessful in convincing them to turn themselves in. So, Thelma tells Louise that she can turn herself in if if Louise wants to go back since she has Jimmy or her boyfriend waiting for her, but that Thelma herself refuses to go back to her husband. She refuses to go back to her old life. Louise argues that they are in this together. They're going to do this together. Later, Thelma discusses what happened at the bar that set off the whole thing and asked if Louise's response to it had to do with what happened in Texas. And Louise grows angry and demands that Thelma never talk about it again, which she had kind of already done previously. She's just been very close, close-lipped about this whole thing. Right. I do want to talk about the one scene when uh, the waitress is giving her statement and just absolutely is like, no, those ladies had nothing to do with it. They're too sweet. They're too nice. One tipped me really well. There's no way that they were responsible in just about how this man's reputation was that he was sort of an and deserved yeah. to die essentially, which puts up a whole like, okay, this is kind of telling to Harvey Keitel's character, like, okay, yeah, there's something amiss. Something had to have happened. Here we go. And then, uh, of course, when the hair pulled over for speeding, which is one of the funnier scenes, I don't know what you thought, they quickly realize they'll be caught. So Thelma, after the police officer tries to get Luis and identify her, pulls a gun on the trooper and forces him into the trunk of the police car, which, again, she is doing some things. Like, you're like, well, damn. All right. (laughs) She's gotten into coming to her own, demanding and demanding, like, turn off the radio, shoot the radio, making little air holes for the police officer. So she's being nice Uh uh, and stuck him in the damn trunk. Mm -hmm. There you go. And as they continue their drive to Mexico... 
hilarious. A truck driver makes rude sexual gestures at them and they force him to pull over after many yeah, uh, interactions. Yeah. Yeah. And him being a dick. Mm-hmm. Demanding an apology from him at gunpoint, which he decides that he's going to be a, a real dick and just continue on, even though they start asking, which, by the way, we've done this recently just for people to get empathy about, like, think about your mother, think about your, your wife. Would you want this to happen to the people you love? And the fact that we have to even, or anyone has to even suggest that for them to think on, about another woman as a human. Hmm. Right. But of course, yeah, yeah he didn't. So they use the gun to blow up his entire rig and leave him stranded and take his hat, which is hilarious. Yes. Yes. Not right, so but funny. It's satisfying. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the police soon catch up with them as they're passing near the edge of the Grand Canyon. And Thelma and Louise decide that in the face of spending their lives in prison, that they keep going. Thelma suggests they keep going. Louise makes sure... You know, she's totally sure of this decision. And they kiss, hold hands. Louise pushes down the accelerator and they fly over the edge and the image freeze frames. Their car hovering in the air over the cliff. It's one of the most famous, iconic, and parodied (laughs) endings of all time. Yes. Yes, but apparently in the original ending, at the last minute, Louise pushed Thelma out of the car but Sarandon and, and uh, uh, Davis fought against it. And ultimately, they got their way. Uh, Gina Davis would later say, I earned my death, which is interesting. And also, um, I read right before coming in to record this, that the scene where Thelma has sex with uh, Brad Pitt, JD, she was supposed to be naked. And there was supposed to be like, you know, boobs and... And Jean Davis was like, I don't see the point. And she went to Susan Sarandon about it. And Susan Sarandon like marched in towards Lee <laughs> Scott and said, no. And so they didn't put it in. It's women supporting women. <laughs> right. But I wanted to, because as I was researching this, I just found so many really funny summaries of this movie. So I wanted to know, Samantha, if you had to TLDR this, if you had to summarize this movie, how would you describe it? Oh, two best friends pushed over the edge, get their revenge, and have their happy ending. (laughs) Point blank. That's beautiful. Thank you. I love that. (laughs) I don't think I can do better than that. It's essentially, yeah, two best friends discover the beauty of their friendship over all else and choose it over all else. And ride or die. Ride or die. (laughs) This is the epitome of ride or die. This is the beginning of ride or die. I feel like, you know, I need to look into it. But yeah, I I think this might be the beginning. (laughs) But okay, as we mentioned, there was a lot of controversy when this movie first came out. And especially around people saying that it portrayed men in a negative light. (laughs) Yeah, there were all kinds of headlines like, is violence what feminism is all about? This is toxic feminism. People calling it a violent, disturbing movie, that it was degrading to men, all kinds of things like that. That being said, plenty of people praised it. A lot of these people, women, but some men. Some have rightly pointed out that there were plenty of good male characters in this film but that they weren't the main characters and were defined through their relationships with Thelma and Louise with women. 
like how most women are defined by men in almost all movies ever. (laughs) All of them. Yeah. Or in the words of critic Janet Maslin, after the film's release, many detractors were annoyed by, quote, something as simple as it is powerful. The fact that the men in this story don't really matter, which again is how women characters are in almost, you know, a majority of our movies. Right. (sighs) And I found this quote interesting. Corey said in 2001, bad guys get killed in every damn movie that gets made. That guy was the bad guy and he got killed. It was only because a woman did it that there was any controversy at all. And I thought that was really interesting because I think she's onto something there. I was thinking about how many movies we have about men getting revenge. Right. And how we're like, yeah, get it. And then in this movie, apparently a huge backlash of like, look at these violent women. They hate men. Oh my God. <laughs> They're supposed to be dainty and kind and just walk away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, from Rebecca Nicholson over at The Guardian in May 2021, this year, when the film was released in 1991, it unleashed a wave of controversy that seemed to take its cast and crew by surprise. Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon appeared on the cover of Time magazine under the cover line, quote, Why Thelma and Louise Strikes a Nerve. The particular nerve that it struck was much debated. Was it, as some critics felt, a thoughtlessly violent movie that saw two women committing terrible crimes in the name of empowerment. And by the way, what are these terrible crimes? Because they did murder one person. They did put a person in a trunk. Everything else seemed like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I got a lot of thoughts about this. I got a lot of thoughts about it. Keeping on with the article, were they, quote, acting like men under the cover of feminism? Or was it, in fact, misandry unfair to men because it portrayed all of its male characters as awful? Never mind that they're not all awful. It's, by the way, a pre-hashtag, not all men. Yes, we know that one so well. (laughs) Were they role models? Was it a feminist parable? Was that ending one of the few that has truly earned the overused adjective iconic, perfect or a cop-out. In The Last Journey, a 2002 documentary about the making of Thelma and Louise, Sarandon addressed all the noise and said, films at their best should challenge your perspective. This is film at its best. Yeah, and that's, that's a great quote. And interestingly, because a lot of people are writing about this movie right now because it's the 30th anniversary, and some people have said this film wouldn't even get made today and that women, in fact, have been losing ground when it comes to representation and entertainment. And we've gone over those numbers on the show. So a lot of articles use those numbers to be like, yeah, look at how we've lost ground, in fact, or how they're going down. But despite the controversy, the film was successful both commercially and critically. It was nominated for six Academy Awards. I believe it's the last movie to have two actresses nominated for the best actress role, like the main actress role from one movie Mm -hmm. with Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. And it won for Best Original Screenplay. And when it won, when Corey accepted the Oscar, she said, for everybody that wanted to see a happy ending for Thelma and Louise, this is it. And yeah, just as a reminder, she is one of the only few women uh, who has won this award. 
Right. And the film had obviously a huge cultural impact influencing feminists thought in other media from recent movies to Taylor Swift to even The Simpsons. In 2016, the U.S. Library of Congress chose to preserve it in the National Film Registry. Yes. And yes, after this movie came out, there were all these predictions that it was the catalyst for so many great movies about women. And don't forget, 1992, which was the year after this movie came out, was predicted to be the year of the woman. But that didn't happen. Um, for the movie's 20th anniversary in 2011, Raina Lipsitz called it the, quote, last great film about women. And for the 30th anniversary, Gina Davis said, I'm thinking, hot dog, let's sit back and wait for all this magic change to happen. We're still waiting. It really did not happen. It seems like every five years or so, there's another movie starring women that's a huge hit. People say, well, now certainly everything is going to change. And it really hasn't. And Gina Davis started an organization called the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, all about representation and media, in part because of this. And she's spoken about how she felt about this after this movie came out, where like, oh, I really need to think about how this role is perceived and what roles I'm taking. Susan Sarandon said, I completely underestimated that we were backing into territory held by white heterosexual males. They got offended and accused us of glorifying murder and suicide and all kinds of things. It didn't seem like a big deal. It seems like it was unusual that there would be a woman that you could be friends with in a film. Which we've talked about a lot. <laughs> right, right. And even for a split second, you still had the stereotype of uh, women pinned against women. And it could have taken a really bad turn. Like you could take yeah. the script and made this horribly done. And I think part of that would have been having, even though it was sweet, like having one being the innocent one and the other one being, you know, the bad one mm -hmm. as it kind of was trying to go down that route. And they did a better job. Like, no, we're in this together in yeah. the stories. And of course, we don't want to highlight violence, nor do we want to highlight suicide in any way. But what this movie did is a completely different conversation about how these women were pushed over the edge by everyday occurrences that are so familiar by all of us. Any yes. person who has grown up female, we know these experiences. The truck driver, yeah, I remember I had yep. those experiences of trying to like drive away real quickly because of the things they were uh, insinuating towards me on the freaking road versus yep. a man thinking buying you a drink gives me entitlement to do this and that and this. And like, yeah. we know these people. We've seen these people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and that's one of the interesting things I find about this movie, which a lot of people have written about is like, you know, it's from 1991 and how can we be watching it in 2021? And we're still like, oh gosh, yes, I connect to all of this. But also there is a really interesting dynamic in my opinion and we're going to talk about this in a minute more, but where there's kind of this ditzy Thelma who is not as worldwise and kind of like, yeah, I just want to have fun. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. And then there's the Wheeze, who is much more like I've seen, seen some and trying to guide them through this journey of, you know, getting away from prison. But then like, they make a switch. They make a really interesting... I don't know if switch is the right word, but they they take care of each other. Like, Belma realizes she needs to do something because Louise is so upset. So she is like, okay, I will take control of the situation, whereas Louise had been control up until that point. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, to your point, I think it could have very much been a kind of catty women against each other 
movie, but it, it is very much like they fight, but then they help each other. Like they support mm-hmm. each other and they stick with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the interesting quotes I read, and I think we've talked about this a lot, <laughs> um, is I just read this quote where together they become a quote, third thing where there's Thelma, there's Louise, but together they become something else where they're kind of transcending their, you know, like Thelma's life being, knowing her husband's cheating on her and is so disrespectful to her. And Louise's life of like, you know, I'm in this waitress mode, but I could be doing all these other things. And they come together and I mean, Thelma says it all all kinds of times in the movie where she's like, I think I'm cut out for this. Or I think like, right. I'm made for this. And I just connected with that so much because I felt that with people. I felt that with you where I'm like, right. together with this woman, with this friend, I feel like I'm coming into my own. Like they're helping me realize my potential and what I can do. Right. I mean, there's definitely where the hype woman, the hype person behind you who encourages you to be the better. Of course, this is not necessarily the better uh, in this example per se, but hopefully like you have those people in your background being able to encourage you to know that you can stand on your own and or you can uh, step forward into this world that's so uncertain to you and or standing up for yourself. In general, like that's that whole level of having that person in your life that sees when you need to be pushed and that sees when you need to be supported. Like there's those those things or yeah. just when you need to be there. And yeah, I don't think that's talked about enough because for the longest time, especially in the 90s, when we looked at like the Heathers and you know, that, that was not the context of the movies. It was all like all on your own. Get what you can, move on. And, you know, mm-hmm. and this was not it. This is not that. This was a, I was protecting you I was defending you. Now we've gone to this point. And, and the truth of the matter is, like, we know women are not believed. And in the 90s, even less so. And just for the mere sake of saying, I took a drink and went outside with him voluntarily, meant enough that you're a slut and you're guilty. Right. And, which is exactly that indication. And understanding that you can't trust the system because they don't believe women. So right. in itself, like, yeah, this is exactly what happens. And then when you push someone to the edge, what happens? And then if you have someone, hopefully they will have your back. And what does that look like? Yeah, it's odd because watching it, you're like, this is, you know, the outcome, the ultimate outcome might have not been a great thing, but you feel like that the they connected so strongly with each other and they stuck with each other. And it's like, something about it is very moving. I mean, Gene Davis's character, Thelma does say, that I've had the best time and I feel like for the first time I'm, you know, living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think this is, I thought about talking about this in this episode. I think it's too big of a topic for now, but it kind of goes back to our platonic marriage thing. But I was yeah. just kind of thinking about why does this idea, in my friend group at least, of a compound of women, essentially, resonate so much. Right. And it feels like when I'm watching that movie, this is kind of it, is like, you know, hashtag not all men, but essentially we're still living in a patriarchal system where I know if I were to marry, even if it was someone I loved, I don't trust myself because I've been raised in this system not to not grow resentful and take on more burden than Mm -hmm. I should take on because Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what's expected of me. And the dude in relationship has been raised in the same patriarchal system and has different expectations. And that's not saying like, 
it's either of our faults necessarily, but that's what we were raised in. Right. And communication is great, but I do think at a certain point, it's hard to communicate your own experience right. to somebody who hasn't experienced it. Um, so when I watched it, I was like, this is the vibe I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 with, the, with the compound. And yeah, I do think, I like that there's moments where they're angry with each other and frustrated with each other, but they kind of give each other space. And they don't, even if there are moments where they kind of like have barbs at each other, they don't really blame each other, ultimately. Right. Like they stick with each other. And I think that's a that's a really beautiful representation of it because it's hard not to, even if you're the the victim or the survivor, not to have those thoughts of like blame. And I like that they have those, but then kind of give space and then are like, no, but I was wrong. Right. It wasn't you. We're sticking together. And then I do like that, yeah, there's this real shift in their characters, especially Thelma, I think, who goes from being what she calls like sedate or Louise calls sedate, kind of what you settle for, which is the quote, to re really being like... <laughs> Right. I'm going to rob this place. I'm going to stick this cop in the back of the trunk. Uh, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. <laughs> I'm sticking with you. Uh, and she says a lot of lines that are really interesting. Like, um, I can't go back and I, I feel awake. All these things. And then this was filmed in Utah. Which I just say, because I did a similar road trip with my friend through Utah. And it was it was okay. equally, like, really rewarding. Yeah. I wasn't on the run from the law, although we did get pulled over say. twice. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <Congrats>. For speeding. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just, like, a really beautiful experience to, to be in, in that, that space with, uh, for me, another just really close female friends and then I did want to point out there are those moments like Louise throwing away her lipstick trading her jewelry for a straw hat like these items of mm -hmm. femininity that are if you're living a life on the run are ultimately worthless or kind of like what good does this do me <laughs> right yeah and also, interestingly, the two main stars were 35 and 45 when they were cast, which as we know in Hollywood, you know, 32 is like the end of your career as a woman. Right. That is changing, but still pretty amazing that this happened. And about the ending, Corey said, to me, the ending was symbolic, not literal. We did everything possible to make sure you didn't see a literal death, that you didn't see the car land, you didn't see a big puff of smoke come up out of the canyon. You were left with the image of them flying. They flew away out of this world and into the mass unconscious. Women who are completely free from all the shackles that restrain them have no place in this world. The world is not big enough to support them. I loved that ending and I loved the imagery. After all they went through, I didn't want anybody to be able to touch them. This could be like the Grease ending, which they just flew off in the car for no damn reason. And everybody was like, what? What's happening? Oh, really? 
<laughs> Which came first, Greece or <laughs> Greece? Yeah. Oh, that was okay. in the 80s, right? No, 70s. Oh, now you got me thinking. I think it was oh, 70s. I think you're. I think you're right. It's before this. Yeah. But um, yeah, but it has nothing to do. I have no doubt this has nothing to anything to do with Greece. I like that Greece keeps coming up. <laughs> it was in my head. I was like, because I will forever confused, as you can tell, as to why at an ending of a musical, which they were just supposed to drive off, that they had to fly. The car had oh, to fly. Gotta fly. Gotta fly. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting thought uh and we're going to talk about that more in a minute of like this kind of symbolic ending but we definitely have to talk about trauma because trauma is throughout this movie and one thing i found interesting is that generally not always but the men are continuously screwing the women over in this movie and one of the reasons i found this really interesting is because there were a lot of male critics who said especially when it came out Um, that the women pretty much deserved what happened to them because of the terrible decisions they made throughout the movie, which is kind of the point. It's like they missed the point, which is, yeah, just more evidence of blaming women, of turning around like, oh, she was almost raped. It was her fault because of what she was doing. Oh, she was robbed. It was her fault because of what she was doing. And some have even pointed out you know, even good guy Harvey Keitel doesn't seem to realize the world we live in. Like, he's very, I want to help you, and that's great, and all this stuff. But Susan Sarandon has been through it. Like, it's implied she's been through this, and she knows what it looks like. And she realizes what's going to happen to them if they get caught, and he doesn't. Right, right. Oh, I think he, he's very much aware, but he thinks the the awful ending is death. Like, that he thinks mm-hmm. that's the worst ending. And so, mm-hmm. I, I get that, like, that may be the end point, but I think into that tell, like, to him, death is the ultimate bad ending. Right. That he wants to save any of that. Um, because even in the movie, he actually does say, as, like, they bring out all the guns and hunt them down and have, like, all, like, ready to go, he was like, stop, they've been screwed over so many times. Right. And he actually says that, as in, like, this is one more thing. You're implying that they're hardened criminals. They're like, well, they're armed and dangerous. And they're, yeah, they're armed and dangerous. They've actually only hurt one person in this mm-hmm. entire time, which one person is bad enough. But in the actuality of it all, it's like they, they're not on a killing spree, mm-hmm. as so many would think. Um, as in fact, yes, the cop is crying, but they keep apologizing to him. I'm yeah. so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Again, doesn't make it right, but to put them as dangerous, hardened criminals is not the same implications as right. what is happening. And I think he does understand that level. And I think he was put in that character as being like, hey, here's one guy who kind of gets it, but still truly cannot get it, even though he's yeah. got some of the puzzle pieces. Yeah, I think so. I think he's the, what is that? That's like the, <laughs> the Star Wars reference of the episode, the Poe Dameron of this, where yeah. it's like a good guy that doesn't get, that he's like, doesn't get it. So... One producer said when they were shopping around this script, the main characters were, quote, basically detestable and unsympathetic. We'll never get the audience's support. And I wanted to use this quote because I've actually heard a producer tell me something similar about what I wrote once. And then I've been thinking about this a lot. And we've been kind of talking about it or around it a lot in this because the new Marvel show, What If, 
people have been saying, like, this is sort of showcasing white male mediocrity. Because I feel like if this was a story about two men, we'd be cheering. Oh, yeah, they locked that cop up in the trunk. <laughs> like, we would be, we would be oh, all Especially four. if they were defending a woman. Like, yes. even more so. There's nothing higher. Mm-hmm. A woman can't defend herself. But mm-hmm. a man defending a woman it gets all the high praises. Yes. I Yeah, and it just got me thinking. And I want to come back and do an episode on this. but Because I, I kind of talked about it and like the, the glorification of the asshole man. But I just feel like, again, we're saying these women who generally are pretty funny, pretty likable, and are not like outright hurting anybody other than what we'll say is a pretty villainous man in self-defense. And yet we, or critics at this time, were saying like, oh my God, they're so detestable, we can't like them. Whereas now I feel like a good chunk of our kind of heroes or anti-heroes and our big blockbuster movies are men that are doing kind of the same thing. Right. Yeah. And then another another idea that came up to me is kind of this whole, like, one prison for another. So especially when you look at Thelma's character, who is like slowly realizing, I cannot go back to my husband. I cannot go back to this life that she was living in this prison. And now that she's free from it, she's she's like found a, a talent or something, as she says, for it. And that she's like blossoming outside of it. And I know I brought this up in our Women in Revenge episode, but it made me think of The Awakening again because The Awakening by Kate Chopin, if you haven't read it, is very similar to this. It's about a woman who kind of, you know, breaks gender norms and gender conformities and experiences freedom in a way she hadn't before. And then at the end, she goes swimming and it's implied, you're you're left to decide whether she intentionally killed herself or she just died because she didn't realize she was going too far out and then she couldn't come back. And it's like she was going out into freedom and then once she got a taste of it, she couldn't go back. And so that it reminds me of this. It felt the same of like, oh, I got this taste for this. I cannot go back to what it was before. I was going to say, that's a lot of plot points for women, especially during like uh, times of suppression and oppression, that they are seen as eccentric. Mm-hmm. And so once they become something different, there's no other way to handle this woman than to have her own demise or create her own demise yeah. and or walk her away. Mm-hmm. Which is constant. Like you see that with uh, Fitzgerald, some yeah. of Fitzgerald's novels. You see that with Hemingway's novels. Like mm-hmm. either she dies or she's in prison forever. Yep. Like it's just kind of one or the other. And it does seem like a carrying thing that we should come back to now that we're talking about it. We should. That's definitely a good point of like to get out of this, you have to die essentially. <laughs> right. If you found freedom, you realize how miserable your life is, that there's no other option. Yep. Yep. Um, and speaking and of... specifically for women. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And speaking of, we did want to talk about, because we always talk about trauma on here, and Louise's past trauma is throughout this film, her PTSD over it. Uh, you can just see the ripple effects. That's kind of what caused her to shoot this guy, Harlan, who was attempting to rape her friend in the beginning. Like it was just built up and she didn't want her friend to go through it, but she was also dealing with what she had been through. That's why they couldn't go through Texas. That's why she couldn't get caught or allow herself to get caught that she wanted to go on. This whole idea of not believing women. Louise has a 
you know, very impactful line where she's like, we don't live in that world, Thelma. Like, we can't just turn right. ourselves in. Right. And we don't know the exact situation, but mm-hmm. obviously with the Harvey Keitel's character saying, I know what happened in Texas, she probably went down that route of trying to get justice mm-hmm. the right way. But she wasn't believed, so it was one more trigger in which she learned, I'm not ever going to get helped, and they don't believe women. So that was kind of that whole level of like, yeah, there's no justice, and yeah, everything's uh, as bad as I remember it being, and it still follows me as it doesn't follow the guy who, the actual perpetrator. Right, yeah. And, And I do find it interesting that throughout there are these, you know, there's this huge, terrible incident at the beginning, but then there are all these like minor kind of things that we as women are used to throughout. And so like one is, you know, people calling Louise, especially a bitch, even though, you know, she's like, don't rape my friend. <laughs> like, oh, you bitch. Okay. Or the the truck driver who is continuously gesturing at them or calling rudely at them. Uh, also, he says stormtrooper of love, which I looked up to make sure I didn't miss here. That is what he says. (laughs) And it is... I feel weird saying this because I do have... I personally have a lot of hangups around revenge. I I get that they're really compelling stories. But it is satisfying as a woman to watch that guy get his come up. It's like, honestly... (laughs) Right. He didn't get killed. (laughs) Yeah. In the end, like, he was fine. And yes, and he will be compensated for the livelihood... Maybe he'll think twice before catcalling women again. Yeah. And how many movies have we seen, especially superhero movies, or like James Bond movies, where the movie starts, the woman gets killed, James Bond kills everybody that had anything to do with it. And we're like, go James Bond. Right. That's every show almost, too. Every dramatic police crime, any of those shows are along those lines. Yes. Yes. So I just... I find it interesting that when it's based towards women and women's experiences and lived experiences and that clearly a lot of women can connect to based on how this got made, that men were really uncomfortable around it and that they didn't like that women were happy that this cat collar got right. his comeuppance. I find that and it very was, telling. Again, <laughs> they, they did their own vengeance instead of a man. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, defending their honor, which is acceptable. Exactly. Exactly. I find that really interesting that we can't let women have this like cathartic vengeance moment, but men kill all kill all the people you want in the name of this woman, and it's right. a huge blockbuster hit, and we're not going to have a controversy and about that's it. Just, and that's <laughs> just defending your home. Yes. Um, and then very briefly, I just wanted to mention that I found in this movie very beautiful this aspect of telling friends about trauma um, and opening up to friends about trauma and just having that, even though, you know, you never hear Louise's story in full and you never really hear Thelma's story in full, but you kind of have this acceptance between them and this understanding between them of I'm here for what you need. If you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to talk about it. But I understand that this thing happened to you and I'm here for you, which I find really beautiful and I think that's a big part mm-hmm. of it is because a lot of times you and I totally understand the the drive but you want to push somebody to tell you their experience but that's not always the healthiest thing or the best thing but to have kind of that like okay I'm here for you I will you know occasionally check in with you and ask about it but I'm not going to push you about it like 
Mm-hmm. Just find it very beautiful. As it should be. As it should be. Well, um, if you haven't seen this movie, go check it out. It's great. I found it still held up. It had a lot of funny <laughs> moments, to be honest. I know it sounds kind of grim. Really <laughs> No, they had a lot of funny, relatable moments. Oh, yeah. That you're like, oh, that's fun. And just kind of that whole, even to towards the end, as she's talking about, I found my neck. I found my yeah. car. I can do this. You know, that in itself uh, was a funny line. And it, and it yeah. kind of brought that joy of like, well, okay. Yeah. Again, it's pretty satisfying to see women yeah. coming into their own and coming into their friendship and really just like, yeah, ride or die. Went all in. Went <laughs> all in. They went all in. Well, go check it out if you haven't. And in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for what our next movie should be, please email us. Our email is stuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. I think she'd be a ride or die. She's awesome. I think so. I think she will be. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. Stefan Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 